the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. We've made it to the end of another week, and we'd like to end on a strong note, so we'd love your live phone calls and questions. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls so we can answer your questions about what we believe as Christians and why, questions about the Bible, questions about anything you're going through in your lives. Even as we broadcast live today, we will do the best we can to encourage and strengthen uh, our Lord's precious body. He loves you so very, very, very much. Please don't ever forget that. Here are your phone numbers for the live calls, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in via the Calvary Chapel free mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use hands-free, the KSLR free mobile app, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, we've got a big weekend ahead of us here. We know that you do at your church as well. Uh, as I try to encourage you often, just be willing to be used by God. Ask Him for those divine appointments, the, the, the people that are hurting, the people that are broken and confused. Uh, those are the people that God will use you to minister to. Maybe just somebody who's really, really suffering. And you can put your arms around them and pray for them and encourage them. And the Lord will be so pleased. I also tell you every Friday that it will change your church experience. From being a spectator and going to a participant is an infinite difference. And the Lord wants to use you. Hey, just a couple of quick program notes as it relates to Calvary Chapel. Uh, tonight, we will not be live streaming uh, our service. We'll probably be live streaming just the first part, the kids that are dancing. Uh, but tonight is an afterglow service, not a Bible study. We're between books. So before we start Acts chapter 1 next week, we're going to give the Spirit of God a chance to work in our body. And it's an opportunity for the body to minister to itself. It's a sweet time. Nothing weird happens. It's just beautiful. There's always a theme. The Lord wants to speak to us, and tonight is no different. So that's what's happening here tonight. Our Vacation Bible School, thank you for all of your prayers. Uh, kids uh, made professions of faith today. Of course, only Jesus knows how capable they are of keeping it. But he said, suffer not the little children to come unto me. And you should have seen the kids as they came forward today at the end of EBS. Uh, and the bigger kids, not not real bigger, but slightly bigger kids who've been here for a while, put their arms around them and pray for them. It was really, really uh, a great time. Uh, I, I could feel the Lord smile. Well, those kids who are part of the Calvary Kids Bible School dance team, not just the, that the, those who are up front, but the kids from the Vacation Bible School are going to actually be our source of worship tonight. We're going to watch them uh, go through the songs and the dances that they had that they learned all week. And uh, that's always a great time of worship. Then we're going to go right into our afterglow. So that's tonight. Uh, I'm actually in Romans chapter 7 on Sunday. 
and it is uh, another really valuable, very practical Bible study. So all of that's going on here, wherever it is that you are at church, be a blessing to somebody who's hurting. Okay, one more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's our first question from Scott from our mobile app. Scott says, is Second Chronicles 12.14 a good example of God's character in showing us grace and willingness to quickly forgive our faults, or are we just seeing the consequence of the king's sin? Um, Scott, your question was a little hard for me to understand. The first part and the second part seemed a little bit of a contradiction, so I'm, I'm sure there was something lost in the translation. But Second Chronicles chapter uh, 12, uh, we also have record of this, of course, in, in uh, the books of the kings, uh, it deals with a man named Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son. This would make him the fourth king in, in Israel behind Saul, David, Solomon, and then King Rehoboam. And he was the young man who came to power and, and um, you know, instead of asking the Lord uh, what God wanted him to do, uh, Rehoboam was one of those guys. He sought advice from the elders and they said, well, you know, Solomon put a heavy tax on us and, and your father... He was a great man, but he made things really hard. So if you want to win the hearts of the people, uh, lighten up on a little bit. And that's my paraphrase. And uh, Rehoboam said, well, thank you for your advice. And he went to his younger friends and asked them what they thought. And they said, you know, you should be so much stronger, so much harder than your father, so people will fear you and respect you, the long live the king kind of thing. And he took their counsel. And that was what caused Israel to divide. Now, it's an amazing thing that Rehoboam, Solomon's son was the man who was behind the reasons for the 12 tribes of Israel to be split for the first time in history. Instead of a homogeneous group, they became splintered at war with each other, literally, and it led to the destruction, especially of the northern kingdom, uh, early. Um, but, But it was a time when doing what seemed right to Rehoboam was the wrong thing. He didn't really ask God. And we're told in Second Chronicles that he did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. And that's going to be true for every single one of us. There's something else, Scott, that's really interesting to me about Rehoboam and Solomon. You know, Solomon uh, wrote the, the best child-raising book ever written. The only child-raising book that we need, in fact, to be the godly parents that God calls us to be. And that's obviously the book of Proverbs. And yet this man who is smarter than any man who's ever lived before or since had such great wisdom because it was wisdom that came from heaven. A man who was unequaled in power and wealth. What's amazing is that he was such a bad parent, a bad father. And he raised a son named Rehoboam who would cause the division of God's people, Israel. There's a lot of lessons for us there, Scott. We need to take care of our families. We need to love them. We need to be clear. It's one other thing that we're told. And whenever you get to First and Second Chronicles, when you read First and Second Kings, it's just sort of the history of the kings from the perspective of earth. But when you're reading the Chronicles accounts, that's the history of the kings from heaven's perspective. And God brings forward some information in Chronicles, some motives in Chronicles that we don't find in First and Second Kings. And here's one that's, I think, significant. King Rehoboam, it says, established himself firmly in Jerusalem and continued as king. He was 41 years old when he became king and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which he put his name. Here's the key. His mother's name was Naama. She was an Ammonite. You see, his mother was the result of Solomon being disobedient to the Lord and marrying many, many wives. 300 wives, 700 concubines. Nothing good ever happens from that. And here was the son of Solomon with a Gentile background. And it didn't have to be. So yeah, Scott, 
Sin has consequences. Hard hearts have consequences. In Rehoboam's case, not seeking the Lord has consequences. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question that was sent in from Rich. Um, Should a Christian study other world religions, cults, etc., as a means to be better equipped to share their faith? Now, Rich, I don't know what you mean by share their faith, but if you mean a Christian to to share the Christian faith, we have to know nothing about other religions or cults. Paul says that we're to be wise about that which is good, but simple. And a better word might be naive about that which is evil. And there's no benefit, there's no value in, in, in studying the lies. There's no value at all in, in, in sitting down with somebody and saying, okay, tell me why you believe what you believe. Now, if you're using that as a, an inroad to share Christ with them, it's, it's one thing. But, but there's really no benefit in the kind of knowledge that leads to a lie. You know, world religions, all of them sound good when they're presented in the right light. But we need to remember whether it's Buddhism or Confucianism or whether it's Islam or, or uh, Catholicism or any, any, any ism, any religion that doesn't proclaim that Jesus Christ is God, that he died and rose from the dead and that you must be born again, is a religion filled with lies. And that's what we have to understand. The truth is the only thing that matters. And so, Rich, my suggestion would be to spend your time really focusing on what's true, learn what we believe and why we believe it, and, and learn that inside and out, forwards and backwards. And then your job is to share the truth with people, no matter what religion they're trapped in or what cult they're trapped in. The Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. And we need to do that. Now, Rich, you're not, you didn't ask this, but just for the audience, let me suggest a couple of um, books, some easy to read, some a little bit more difficult. But um, the, the easy ones, I think the really good entry-level uh, books um, to really understand our faith are, are, are what, and, uh, what and why books, I call them. Uh, know what you believe, and know why you believe. They're two paperbacks. They're easy but interesting reading. Um, Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E, is the author. Paul A. Little is the author. And um, those books were invaluable to me as a new Christian, just trying to stumble through what we believe and why it says this, and those books helped a great deal. Uh, There's another book, The Case for Christ, by Lee Strobel. It's a very well-known book. In fact, there was a movie uh, not too long ago that came out uh, based on his life. Uh, and it really is a, a great book. He makes the case for Christ. He also has a case for the Bible. Uh, and, and those are books that are valuable to read. Uh, a more difficult book, a really difficult book uh, to read, but, but really valuable, is uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a new edition by Josh McDowell. And those are books that will help you. Um, if you want to know basic information about other world religions, um, there's a plethora of information about that. Um, Walter Martin, uh, who was the founder of the Bible and some men, the Kingdom of the Cults, is sort of the classic primer on, on um, those uh, aberrant religions that we call cults. So you can get basic information. But I would not dig too deeply into it. Instead, I would spend all of that time spending my energy digging into the Bible, the true and the pure Word of God. So I hope that answers your question. Three, four, four. I'm sorry, three, four, zero, ninety-five, eighty-five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Patrick: uh, What is the age when children? become accountable to God. Patrick, the age of accountability is different for everybody. We have different capacity uh, intellectually, mentally. Um, uh, there, there is no standard. It's interesting you ask this question. I get to it today because on Sunday I'm talking about Paul and his experience with the law. And he's proving the law is good. He says, you know, once I was, I was uh, dead to the law because I didn't know anything about the law. And then I became aware of the law. 
and I knew I was busted. That's a quick paraphrase of a whole bunch of verses. But the idea there is Paul is referring almost certainly to the time before his bar mitzvah as a Jewish um, young man uh, at 12 years of age. They were considered uh, growing into manhood. That was then they were accountable to God. They were accountable to the law, to keep the law, to observe the law. And and the Jewish thought historically has been that 12 years of age is that standard. Now, in our church culture, uh, I've seen 12-year-olds, especially developmentally delayed 12-year-olds, uh, those who are suffering with, with different kinds of issues who weren't accountable. And I've seen three-year-olds in this church who knew exactly what they were doing and knew exactly that Jesus was the answer. And we've had the privilege, when you're here for 22 years, we've had the privilege of watching some of those kids grow up here and flourish in the process. And so we know that they just never took a backward step. So the age of accountability is different. God knows, and that's all we have to rest in. Here's what I know. Every child who meets their end before the age of accountability goes to be in the presence of the Lord. And we don't know when that is, but certainly in most cases, Patrick, uh, by the time somebody's a teenager, um, they, they know, and it's time that they make a choice. You know, I pray for one of my granddaughters in particular who's getting to be that age. And my prayer for her every morning as I look at her picture on our, our wall is, Lord, she's smart. She's beautiful. That's a grandfather speaking. Um, Lord, she needs to know. She needs to make a decision on her own. Away from her parents, she needs to make a decision on her own. And I ask God to touch her heart in a way that she can understand. So uh, the age of accountability just isn't a static age. It changes from person to person. So Patrick, I hope that helps you a little bit. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from April. She says, why doesn't God just... Oh, I'm sorry, let me go to a question. We have a caller. I didn't see him calling in. John from Universal City, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, how are you? Good, John. Thank you. I have a question about anointing. Uh, Pauline has a sister who is very big on anointing, and she was explaining a particular time when she wanted to anoint somebody, and she said her anointing oil smelled funny, so she was going to use something strange like avocado oil or whatever, and and she explained to Pauline, I'm not an elder in the church, but I'm an elder woman in the church, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and as Pauline was reading this to me, I was thinking, man, that sounds awfully legalistic and then it hit me that i really don't know very much about anointing at all and i'm wondering if you could maybe shed some light on that i can john thank you i i'm i'm an elder in the church too by virtue of the years around so i i that's what i was chuckling about john um you know anointing oil is is symbolic now in the old testament is where this idea of anointing began and uh, as I've declared on this program before, when, when an Old Testament saint was anointed, for instance, when uh, Samuel anointed David, they would pour a whole bunch of oil out. It would be on top of their head, and it would literally flow down the length of their body. But it wasn't just this little polite dip in the finger that we do as New Testament Christians. And the reason it doesn't matter is because the anointing oil itself is nothing more than a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So when we are praying, for instance, if any of you are sick, let him call for the elders, let them anoint you with oil, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. When James says that, all he's telling us is, look, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that does the anointing. Um, so, so it's perfectly okay to pray for people, anoint them with oil. It really doesn't matter what kind of oil you use, whether it smelled a little bad or it's brand new. I carry a little bottle around with me. And uh, when we get the opportunity to and, ordain and people, go ahead. Is, is, is anointing something that any born-again Christian can do, or is it something reserved for the elders? No, it's, uh, uh, the specific thing that James mentions is if you're sick, that person should have the faith to come to the elders and ask for prayer. 
and the anointing oil representing the Holy Spirit would do it. But we, any any believer can can anoint somebody else uh, as long as it doesn't get goofy and it's not, you know, we're not anointing somebody or uttering prophetic words over them or anything like that. But But any of us can do that. It's something that we ought to do. There's one other thing, John, that I want to deal with here because in, in our culture, it's a very superstitious religious culture that we live here in San Antonio. And I've been asked repeatedly over and over and over if I would go to somebody's house and anoint it with oil and make sure all the demons are gone and all that stuff. That's where we get into really bad teaching and superstition. Uh, those aren't things that we need to do. I know people that will, will, will anoint their doors every day or anoint a new car if they get a new car. Uh, we don't have to do that. We're, we're not, at least we shouldn't be caught up in that kind of emotional silliness. But, but all we need to do is understand that when I'm there with Christ in me, the hope of glory, that, that uh, no demon can stay there. No demon can hang around and cause me difficulty. If I'm walking with Jesus, then that's the only anointing that we need. And that's what the oil symbolizes. And I think sometimes we take that too literally. Um, the, the writers of the New Testament were largely Jewish converts to Christianity. And so this uh, anointing would be a very familiar concept for us. But when we have the Spirit of God living in us, we are as anointed as anointed as we ever need to be. And the symbols, therefore, no longer have any value. So when we okay. pray, we're, we're praying in faith and, and asking the Holy Spirit to do the, the job of healing. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure, John. Thanks for the call. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. How are we on time? Got about a little over four minutes for this half of the program. April's question. I'll get to that now. April, sorry, I put you on hold there. Uh, why doesn't God just force us to believe and obey? April, that question has been asked by Christians for two thousand years. God, why don't you just make me do the things that I'm supposed to do? The reason He doesn't is because He doesn't want us to be puppets. April, he doesn't want us to, to, to just walk around saying, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. He wants it to come from our heart. And so he asks us to choose. He gives us a choice between obedience and rebellion. He gives us a choice to, b- between believing and, and unbelief. And he wants us to choose of our own free will because it's the only way that we can communicate to him just how much we love him. It's that important. So God could force our behavior, to be sure. And then heaven would be populated with a bunch of people who didn't have any choice. But it's in the choices we make that God is the most glorified. It's in the choices we make where we have access to his infinite power. Acts 5.32, April says, God gives Holy Spirit to those who obey. And the context there is in power. So when we obey, we take that first step of obedience. We have the power to do whatever God wants us to do, is planned for us to do. All we have to do is make that choice. And the fact that God doesn't force us is really a reflection of how much he loves us rather than a reflection of, of whether or not we love him. It's a reflection of his love for us. He wants a relationship that isn't coerced or forced. He wants a relationship where he can look at the angels in heaven and say, there's my, my boy and there's my girl. I love him so much. And so that's why he doesn't force us to believe and obey. We all at times wish he would. Usually those times are right after we made the wrong choice. Or maybe in those times we're being tempted to make the wrong choice. And it would be really great if God would simply remove that choice for a moment and prevail. You know, April, and we're coming to the end of this half hour, so uh, we'd love your live calls on the second half of the program. Um, April, when I give invitations every week, um, I emphasize the fact that they have to make that choice. You know, there are people that sit back, well, if God wants me to believe, he'll make me believe. No. He wants you to believe based on the evidence. He wants you to believe based on his character. He wants you to believe but you have to make that choice. Otherwise, there's no faith because we're forced. And when I give invitations, 
and the Lord is speaking to my heart, often with a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, he'll let me know that there's people out there really struggling. In some cases, he'll let me know what they're struggling with. Now, he doesn't tell me the people. It's not like I'm looking out and seeing a little globe or somebody's head. But, but for instance, there's somebody here today, I've said in the past, who's in a relationship that's not holy. With somebody you're not married to, you're having sex, and God is asking you to choose him rather than the relationship you're in. And you can see people squirming, but they won't get up out of their chair. And I wish sometimes we had ejector seats in our church. But that's what it would be like if God forced us. Instead, all he wants, April, is for us to say, you love me, and now I love you. I believe that you are the Son of God who is God the Son, and now I'm yours, and I offer my body to you. But April, we all, including this pastor, sometimes wish that God would force us. But he doesn't. And that seems to be the way that he gets the most glory. Thanks, April. I appreciate the question. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR for your live calls and questions. We've also still got time to get some of your questions by email. You can email questions at calvarysa.com. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. You're listening to the Word to Santa for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. We'll be back in two minutes. See you then. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program we've got 30 minutes left in this week let me begin with a question from anonymous anonymous says what happened to the lost tribes of israel my friend says that he is a descendant of one of the tribes even though he is hispanic Uh, I'm going to be respectful here. Uh, Nothing happened to the lost tribes of Israel. They were never lost. God knows exactly where they are, and they are all going to be together. uh, You can find them in the book of Revelation during the Great Tribulation. All of the tribes are mentioned. None were lost. It isn't like God saying, where is that tribe of Judah? I can't find them. He knows exactly where they are. My point is, they've never been lost. And this superstition has led to all kinds of problems, like your friend who claims a Sephardic tradition, uh, you know, Jews were, were dispersed and, and ended up in Spain and ancestors came back. There was no lost tribes, so we know that's not true. The Jews who dispersed, dispersed because they became Christians and they were sent out to the uttermost parts of the world. So um, just confidently... You can declare there are no lost tribes. God always knew where they are, and um, they're going to be back at just the right time uh, in Israel today, and I would add in New York City today, are descendants of every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So none has been lost, none has been misplaced, uh, and um, just pray for your friend because they're confused. And again, it's easy to get confused. If you're looking for roots... And you can find on the internet that there's a Sephardic tradition. Um, well, then what happens is you kind of get caught up in it. We all want to know where we came from. I know where I came from. I came from Adam and Eve. I came from Noah and his family. Most important, I was adopted by Jesus. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Again, I want to be respectful, but I've seen so much damage done in terms of People's walks, uh, losing fruit, just because they get caught up in these superstitious traditions. Eva says, I was told Christians would face judgment in heaven, but I thought that's why Jesus died. Is it true that we'll face judgment with the unbelievers? Um, No, it's not true we'll face judgment with the unbelievers. We will be judged, but it's not a judgment for salvation, Eva. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Romans chapter 12, uh, we, we hear about a judgment seat. We all will stand before God and give account of every idle word. 
we who are believers, Eva, will be, or Eva, I'm sorry, I, I'm not sure which it is, uh, we will be judged for what we did, whether good or bad, according to 1 Corinthians 3. And, and good or bad doesn't mean comparatively. Literally translated in the Greek, it's good or good for nothing. So we'll do good works, but if our heart was bad, we won't get a reward for those works. So we will be judged according to our works, but not according to salvation. This is what's called the Bema, B-E-M-A, uh, seed of God, and Bema is the Greek word. But this is an idea uh, like unto a, a, an Olympic victory stand, you know, where they stand the three athletes, the gold, the silver, and the bronze medals. They stand them up on this podium, and they get their reward. They get the flowers. They get a medal around their neck and a kiss on the cheek from the presenter. Um, that's what Paul is envisioning when he writes about this reward seat. Uh, we'll, we'll, rewards will be given. Rewards will be lost. And they'll be given and, and rewarded based on the heart behind the work, whether the work was for God and done by the power of God. Um, rewards will be lost uh, based on uh, whether or not our heart was right. We, were we doing it for Jesus or were we doing it for us? Now, I mention that because we need to be careful about the things we do. Motive means everything. My church is sick to death of hearing me say that. But it's important we get that. Motive is everything. I can do the right thing for God, but if I do it with the right or with the wrong heart, there's no reward. I can give. I can, I can be the most generous person in the church, but if I'm doing it, like Ananias and Sapphira did, for example, in order to get attention, well, then there's no reward. If I'm serving or giving because somebody is compelling me to, instead of because I just want to because I love him so much, there's no reward. But for the rest of us, the things that we do with the right heart for his glory, we're going to receive crowns of righteousness. We're going to cast those crowns down at his feet, but we will get rewards. That's the judgment for believers, Eva or Eva. Um, unbelievers, it's completely different. They're going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment at the end of the great tribulation. Uh, a, a, a lake of fire is going to be created um, for the devil and his angels, but it is also going to be the eternal place uh, uh, for for those who die in unbelief. And they're going to be judged according to what they did in this world. The books are going to be open. The book of life, not the Lamb's book of life, because that's us, but the book of their life. And the judge, Jesus, is going to pronounce them guilty right on the spot. You are guilty. Nobody's going to be able to utter a word. Paul tells the Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means for the believer, we'll make that uh, a victory declaration. But for the unbeliever, that profession will be made in absolute horror, in terror, because they're going to be judged and thrown into the lake of fire where they will be in torment forever and ever and ever. That's the unbeliever's judgment. Uh, it is not our judgment, you can rest assured. Uh, when we stand before the Lord, it's going to be because he wants to give us something. Now, this is how I always envision it. Now, it's probably not going to be this way at all. We can't imagine heaven, but this is what's always worked for me. Uh, I imagine standing before the Lord, and he's looking at me, and he's got a smile on his face, and I'm looking at him in awe of his brilliance. You know, looking at that face shining shining like the sun in all of its brilliance is going to be really a moment. And then he's going to turn around, there's going to be this big cabinet, and he's going to open the doors, and there's going to be all these crowns. And, and he's going to look at me and say, Ron, whatever my new name is going to be in heaven, Ron, these are for you. And I'm going to say, for me? And you say, yes. I'm going to say, Jesus, give them to me. He's going to say, well, I can give all of them to you. Here are the ones that are yours, but here are the ones that I wanted to give to you, but I had to give to somebody else because they were faithful when you weren't. I had to give to somebody else because they served me with the right heart, only wanting glory for me. And that thought process for me matters so deeply because just ingrained in me, is this, I don't want to miss out on anything. Not a single thing he has for me. I want it all. If we're going to cast our crowns down at his feet in worship, 
I want to have a bunch of crowns to cast. It would break my heart if I got to heaven and found out that because of my disobedience or my lack of faith or my ego or pride, there were some crowns that were intended for me that had to go to somebody else instead. It's a place of reward and loss of reward. And that's all it is. So if you're a believer, Eva or Eva, and I'm sure you are, um, don't fear judgment. It'll be a time when God will reward our efforts and he'll say, I'm proud of you. Hope that helps, Eva. Thank you very much. 340-9585. Here is a question from Dallas. He says, times are changing so fast that I can't understand how an ancient Bible has any value for us today. Your thoughts, please. Dallas, the best thing about our Bible is that it doesn't change. And it gives the people that you're talking to, the people I'm talking to, uh, hopefully you're a believer. But you see, this ancient word is perfect because it's an anchor for our soul. It means there's no changing standard. It means that there isn't a a set of rules for the 14th century and a different set of rules for the 21st century. Or any changes in between. It gives us that, that firmness that we need. Something that we can hold on to and never have to worry about what's right or what's wrong. Because if it was right at the beginning and God declared it right, it's always right. If it was wrong at the beginning and God declared it, then it's always wrong, no matter what culture you live in. And you're right, times are changing so fast, but for us, Dallas, in this country, especially in the United States, where we have been the most free people on earth to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not taking advantage of that. It's almost like we apologize for having an ancient Bible. God's name, one of them, is the Ancient of Days. When Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? He said, tell them I am. Not I was or I will be, but I am. He lives always in the present. And remember, God is perfect. He is a consuming fire of holiness. He never has to change. The problem is we, the people, are changing so quickly that the world is convincing us who need to be convinced by God once and for all. His word delivered to the saints once for all. And it's just as true, just as relevant, just as active and alive today as it was 2,000 years ago when it began to be accumulated in the New Testament. So Dallas, don't be afraid of that. When the world says things are changing, say yes, but not for the better. Here's what I have for you, this message. That's why Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God and salvation. This is how the Holy Spirit works. And it's because his word never changes. Because God doesn't flow with the crowd. We have the answers for those people who are hurting in the time our world is changing so rapidly. Change is good sometimes. But it's often bad when that change sort of flies in the face of what God has told us. So Dallas, I'm going to encourage you as best I can to really dig into your Bible, find out if it really is God's Word. You've got to be persuaded in your own mind. Be intellectually honest in your pursuit and challenge the Lord to show you, I'm going to read this Bible, I'm going to study it, I want to know, no, I need to know if this is your word, if this was just a book. And I promise you, if your heart is honestly seeking, He'll let you know that this is His word, it is an anchor for your soul, and then when you find out it is, then you're responsible to tell others. And God wants us to stand against the changing tide of our country, the changing in the times that we live in. He wants us to stand with him and for him in the same. He needs a voice, Dallas. 
I want to be his voice. I hope you want to be his voice. But you don't even have a voice until you've made the decision that, yes, this is God's word. I can trust it. Again, don't believe just because I said it. Study it. Study how we got it. Study the prophetic nature. Study the history in the Bible. And I promise you at some point, and this is exactly what happened to me, at some point it was as though Jesus was sitting in that room with me after months of studying and months of really digging in. I needed to know. It was as though he was sitting there with a bored look on his face saying, Are you convinced yet? Are you convinced now? Surely now you're convinced. And there was a day when I just knew. I knew I studied, I dug in, but then the Spirit convinced me. And Dallas, that changed my life. I've never doubted my salvation as a result of that. I've never doubted the veracity of my message. I know we have answers to the problems that we face in life, and I know how to find those answers. And that's what he wants for all of us. So I hope that helps you. 340-9585. Phones have been quiet today, but uh, here is a question from Dale. He says, Pastor Ron, in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul talks about the last trumpet. Is that the same as the trumpet judgments in Revelation? I'm going to read the verses, Dale, and then I'll answer the question. Listen, we're told. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, I wanted to read that uh, from First Corinthians, Dale, because uh, this confuses a lot of people just because of the mention of, of a trumpet. Now, in Jewish thought, a trumpet... Uh, was used for a lot of different reasons. It was a call to readiness. Uh, it, going all the way back to the Exodus wilderness, the trumpet would sound, depending on the, the, the tone of the sound or the number of blasts on the trumpet. It's not a trumpet like we think of a trumpet either. Shofar um, um, would, would be what, what ancient Israel used. Um, they would know what to do. Uh, there would be a call to readiness. That would be, uh, it's time the, 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 the cloud is moving. We need to get up, prepare uh, the, the, the campsites, get them ready to move out. Uh, then there would be another trumpet blast. It's time to go. And then they would move. There were trumpets used in warfare. Uh, trumpet calls, uh, uh, bugler calls, uh, going back into our history as a military in the United States. So that's what Paul has in mind. What he says is, that at the last trumpet, that means the last one that says, ready, go. You know, a track meet when all the runners line up and they get down on your mark, get set, and then the gun fires. That's what Paul has in view here. So uh, don't confuse them. When you do, then you get to the, the second half of the Great Tribulation, and you think, well, that must be when the rapture is going to happen. No. We're going to be out of here before the Great Tribulation even begins. That's when we will hear this trumpet. Will it be a literal trumpet blast? No. What we'll hear is Jesus say, as he did to John, come up here, Revelation chapter 4. Come up here. I can't wait to hear that. In fact, I'm going to be quiet for a couple of seconds, see if I hear him. Okay, not yet. But we should long for that moment. Now, this isn't Dale's question, but... For those who have, over the past few weeks, argued about the rapture, the rapture, the words not in the Bible, this is the rapture of the church. It's a mystery. It's something new that's been revealed. For those who say the rapture of the church is only uh, 150 years old, it was started by Darby, that's nonsense. Paul started it in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I tell you a mystery. Greek word is musterian. It's something that's not yet been revealed. Hinted at, but not revealed. 
And then he says this, we will not all sleep. That's a euphemism, a modern Jewish euphemism for dying. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. That's a Greek word, metamorpho. And we get uh, sort of like a, a, a butterfly, um, you know, uh, coming out of a cocoon. We'll be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, that fast at the last trumpet. And the dead will be raised imperishable. That's those who have already died. Our spirits with Jesus, and we, who's the we? We who are alive and left till the coming of the Lord, we will be changed. That's the rapture of the church. Dale, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Ola. Ola, good to hear from you again. It's praying for you again today. Uh, Ola says, I don't like those borderline crude or inappropriate jokes. It seems like I even hear some of them in churches. Uh, when I research movies, I won't go if I notice they contain ugly jokes. My husband says I'm being legalistic or overly conservative, and she wants to know if that's true. Uh, Ola, it's not. What, what's going on is you have a sensitivity to the things of God. Um, we all have different thresholds. We all know when we stumble. Uh, I will not go to a movie that takes God's name in vain, period. I just, I, I just can't stand it. That's my, my threshold. Um, um, I don't like filthy jokes. Um, I, I, you know, they don't they don't entertain me, so I'm not going to be interested in going to a movie like that. Um, it it frustrates me all to no degree when I hear Christian pastors using jokes and inappropriate language. Um, you know, we're not here to entertain people. So, uh, so you know, what we've got to do is we've got to stand for, for truth. Now, um, I, I'm not suggesting your husband is less spiritual than you are. He just is pretty clear he has a different threshold. But, but talk to him about it. Ask him. So I'm not being legalistic. I'm not telling you you can't go to those movies. But I don't want to go. Uh, I've gone to movies with people in, in the church here and uh, movies we thought were okay and I hear God's name taken in vain and, and I have to get up and leave. Paul and I will leave. We don't look down on the people who are still there. But we have to go. Romans fourteen twenty three says, anything not of faith is sin. So for you, if you're that sensitive, and I, I didn't mean overly sensitive, but if you're that sensitive to the, to the things of the Spirit, well then just rejoice in that. God, is, God wants you closer to Him than the things of this world. And I think too many of us have compromised way too much because, well, you know, that's the world that we live in. But remember, we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. So um, tell your husband if you go, God bless you. I'll be praying for you. Um, but respectfully ask Him not to force you to go and violate your conscience. And you should never have to defend to a, a godly husband. You should never have to defend not wanting to offend Jesus. So do it um, for the Lord. Not legalistic at all. It only gets legalistic if you're asking others not to do it because you are offended. Here is a question that came in from our mobile app anonymously. Heavenly rewards. What for? Will folks have a hierarchy in heaven? In other words, one not in the inner circle will have to request access, just like our president. Now, I'm not sure the motive for asking this question, but clearly rewards are going to be given and lost. And and um, those who are faithful with the gifts they've been given are going to get more rewards than those who aren't. Paul says in that 1 Corinthians chapter 3 passage, some are going to get into heaven as though smoking. In other words, barely making it in, uh, but they're still going to be there because they believed in Jesus Christ. So yes, there is going to be greater rewards in heaven. I don't call that a hierarchy, just greater rewards for people who are faithful. Now, one thing I want to clear up about this idea of, of differing rewards we're only going to be judged in this Bema seat of Christ. We're only going to be judged based on the gifts we've been given. So if somebody, you know, Jesus tells some parables about talents, uh, one talent, uh, five talents, and ten talents, uh, to whom much is given, much is required, he says. But the person who has one talent uh, and uses that talent faithfully, 
and, and as unto the Lord for the Lord's glory is going to be rewarded in exactly the same way the person who's faithful with ten talents is. So the equality uh, of, of blessing is going to be based on our faithfulness with what we've been given. It's not like because, um, um, I'll use the example that so many people use, that Billy Graham you know, led uh, um, hundreds of thousands of people to the Lord in his crusades and was a public figure and lasted for so long. It's not like he's going to have a special penthouse in heaven. No, if he was faithful with his gift and somebody who watched babies in the nursery at church and was faithful to love those babies and pray for those babies and continue to pray for them, they're faithful with one gift, then the reward is going to be the same. But those who are not faithful, you know, sometimes we think just getting to heaven is going to be enough. Well, I know I'm saved, so God wants me to be happy. I can just get to heaven. That's not at all true. We're going to give account of our lives. And can you imagine looking into Jesus' eyes when he says, I wanted to give you these rewards, but you wouldn't let me because you wouldn't be faithful. You get in, but it's never enough. Remember, our goal is to please the one who loves us. Now, will we have to request access? No, we don't have to request access now. We just have to use the access we've got. And I don't know what the shot that your president or or our president is all about, but I want to remind you, Anonymous, don't be disrespectful to the office of president no matter who holds it. Don't be disrespectful or to honor the king, even if he's not supposed to be acting like a king. Remember, he needs Jesus as did our previous president and the presidents before them. So, it's not a political process in heaven. What did you do with what you were given by God? Did you use it for Him, for His glory? Hey, great week on the program. Lots of calls all week. Today it was a little bit quiet, but we can't wait for Monday. You're listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I'll be back, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on Monday to take your phone calls and answer questions. In the meantime, have a great weekend serving Jesus. Find somebody who needs to be loved on and be the one God uses. See you Monday. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.